But tonight, we're going to meet over in the uh, couples class right here. The couples class, not the teens tonight. I told uh, Brother Kavanaugh I don't want to upset the, the balance of the universe by utilizing that room and have the kids know where to go tonight. So we'll, we'll go ahead. Because the kids like to use that room, you know, to kind of take out their aggression after the services. You know, so uh, we'll leave that room open, and we'll just meet right here in this classroom over here, okay? And then we'll take care of that. Very good. So we'll see you about 10 minutes after the service is over. The meeting should not last long. Probably no more than about 15 minutes lands. And uh, really should. Uh, just a couple things we want to share with you, give you an opportunity to consider whether or not it's something you'd be interested in. And then we'll go from there. Okay, you don't even have to make a decision tonight. That's all I'm saying. But just give you some things to think about. Okay, Isaiah chapter 6 tonight. Isaiah chapter 6. And uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, look at Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Beginning in verse 1 today. All right. Isaiah chapter 6. In verse 1. Is this sound on to you? I want to make sure you can hear me real good. <laughs> You'll hear me. But anyway, Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet. With twain he did fly. That's two, by the way. And one cried unto another, said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. The house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips. Thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. I want to focus our attention on verse 8. And also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Now what we find in the book of Isaiah is an interesting thing. We have here on earth, we have a man by the name of Isaiah who ultimately will become one of the great prophets of Israel, hearing the voice, seeing a vision. Being asked the question or hearing the question asked in heaven, who shall I send and who will go for us? And he responds in his heart, he responds in his life with, here am I, send me. And that's a wonderful thing. Boy, to hear the voice of God, it kind of reminds you of Samuel who said, you know, speak, Lord, for thy servant here. And so we have Isaiah now, and he's hearing this uh, voice in heaven. He's seeing it unfold before his very eyes. And he said, here am I, send me. But... I think there's a greater, greater picture taking place here. I believe, honestly, that we're seeing a conversation in heaven. And again, once again, we see this word us here. Who shall I send and who will go for us? I think the Trinity is being referred to here. 
us, the Trinity, Amen. Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Although they're one, they're three. The three uh, distinct in their purpose and in how they how they function, but they're one. They're unified. They're they're equal. There's no one better than the other. No one less than the other. They're equal. They're three in one. You say, can explain that to me, please? Good luck. But uh, nonetheless, it's biblical. It's scriptural, and we find the Trinity there in Genesis chapter one, verse twenty-six. The Bible, interestingly enough, says that God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the flesh of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Again, I think the, the Trinity is being called. Let us make man in our image. Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Each one having a part in creation. Each one being active in creation. We see in Genesis 11:7, go to now, when we talk about the Tower of Babel, go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. Let us go down, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. The Trinity active, the Trinity involved in the work of, of, of the taking place here on earth. Now, I believe that the Trinity is speaking, who shall I send and who will go for us? Yes, did, yes, indeed, uh, Isaiah responded to the call, without a doubt. We're grateful for that response. However, I think that as the Trinity is speaking, who will go for us? I believe there's a question to the Trinity. And I think, without a doubt, I, I really am convinced that Jesus Christ that day said, Here am I, send me. I'll go. I see the great need of humanity. I recognize that they're sinners lost and they're without hope. I realize that without God becoming flesh, literally taking the place of mankind on a cross that he deserves, man will perish and end up in an eternal hell. And I believe Jesus Christ stepped up to the plate that day, so to speak, and he made a decision to go. And there, it was not long uh, in, into history that we find Mary being you know, supernaturally conceived of the Holy Ghost, and Jesus comes forth, born of a woman, all God, all man, and able to redeem us who are fallen. Who will go? Who will go? And I think the greatest example we have in all the world and in heaven is Jesus Christ when it, when it comes to this going issue. And as we consider missions, as we look at just the work of God today in, in our country, in our world, even in our communities, we need those that will go. That will answer the call. Who will go? And tonight I want to answer that question. Who will go? And I want to use just two words to answer it. The willing. The willing. And so tonight let's consider the willing tonight. Let's look at who will go. Who will go? Father we come to you. We thank you again for just the privilege that we have to gather tonight. Lord we're looking forward to. Father, what you're going to do with our missions budget this year and how you're going to enable us to help to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we don't get rich. Not one person gets rich on this, gets penny for this. Father, this is our missionaries that receive the money. It's our program that we put on through the year trying to, Father, establish works in other countries and even in the United States. Father, we're seeking, Father, to make an impact and influence lives for eternity. Lord, help us, Father, to... Father, just give to that cause and to see, Father, your word and your work increase. Now, Lord, we love you. And tonight as we consider this thought, you know, who will go? 
Lord, help us to never forget it will be the will in the end. Father, may you just give us some insights tonight and encourage us from your word. Well, thank you. In Christ's name, amen. So we think about the willing. Years ago, when I was preparing to go into the military, I was given some advice. And it wasn't just by one person. It was by a number of people. They gave me a, a ton of advice, to be quite frank with you. Everybody had a piece of advice. But the one piece of advice that I heard over and over and over again that just reoccurred on a number of occasions was this advice. Never volunteer. Never volunteer. No matter what you do, don't volunteer. Well, you know, I, I mean, honestly, I, I don't know. When I was in school, you know, and the teacher would say, well, who will uh, clean the erasers? I'd volunteer. The teacher would say, you know, who will leave the, the kids out for recess? I'd be glad to volunteer. I mean, it didn't matter what it was. Who will sharpen the pencils? I'd volunteer. I mean, I was kind of put on that kind of wavelength, you know, volunteer, you know, step up. Somebody's got to do it. If nobody else will, do it. And boy, I'll tell you what, I, I kind of... Kind of, I heard that and I thought, never volunteer. And I thought, I'm never going to volunteer. Never. And boy, I'll tell you what, it was kind of funny as I went to basic training and there I met my, my wonderful, loving, nurturing sergeant. <laughs> and uh, as I, 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 I recognized that this environment was a little bit different than school, slightly different than home, and I realized why I should never volunteer. It made perfect sense to me at that point. And uh, I didn't volunteer. I mean, for nothing. You know, you said, attention, you know, here you are standing there, and they're like, all right, who'll do this morning? And some of these guys, you know, I'm thinking knuckleheads. Oh, and I'm thinking, not me, boy. I'm trying to hide. I'm trying to be as obscure as possible. I'm trying to stay in the shadows. You know what I mean? If he doesn't know my name, we're doing good. But you know, it's funny. One day I get called into the office. Yeah, uh -oh, I was right. <laughs> And I'm thinking, what in the world? He's not even supposed to know my name. And uh, Sergeant Waller was six foot two, 225 pounds. And I mean, this dude was a big guy. And of course, uh, I wasn't even as big as I am now, obviously. And you can tell I put on a little weight. But there I was calling that office, and I thought, what's he want me for now? My dad told me a number of stories when he was a Marine about how it went down in Paris Island. I'm thinking, oh, man, they're going to blanket party in here with me. I'm going to get beat up or something. You know what I do wrong? Man, he calls me in there, and he, he says, all right, O'Donnell, sit down. I sit down, and he starts talking to me about squads and about the platoon and all this stuff. And he's like, we have a need for a squad leader. And I'm like, what? I'm sitting there thinking, you Either we gotta need a light, but we need a squad leader. I was hoping uh, you'd volunteer. <laughs> and honestly, and this is the honest truth, I went. Uh, he, I, by now I'm standing. <laughs> I'm like, no, thank you, Sergeant Wool. <laughs> Let me tell you something. That was not the right answer. <laughs> he didn't think that was very funny at all that I turned him down. And he pulls out this stick. It's a straight stick. Perfectly straight. He holds it up, and I'm thinking, here it comes. I'm going to get nailed. <laughs> See, my dad told me about these, these, what's those things? I can't remember what they were called. The sergeants, first of the sergeants used to use them. Swagger sticks. They used to use them in Paris Island, you know, and whack dudes and all that. And I'm thinking, here it comes. I'm going to get nailed. And all of a sudden, he said, to him, you see this stick? Donald? And uh, I said, yeah. He goes, 
This is Mr. Stick to you. Because you didn't want to, you don't want to be a squad leader? You don't want to volunteer? Wrong answer, O'Donnell. You go, see Mr. Stick? He stands up straight and tall when I tell him to stand up straight and tall. He lays down when I tell him to lay down. He gets back up when I tell him to get back up. I'm telling you, you're going to be a squad leader. What do you have to say about that, O'Donnell? Yes, Sergeant! <laughs> So before I was over, I was a squad leader. I didn't want to volunteer for nothing. I got volunteered. You know, when it comes to the work of God, if we're not careful, we can have that same mentality, can't we? Let's face it, we're considered soldiers. According to the book of Timothy, we're soldiers in this army. And you know what? There's a battle to be fought, and it's not always an easy warfare. And the truth is, is it would be easy to try to kind of lay low and hide in the shadows and be somewhat obscure and not have any responsibility and just kind of get through life. But God's crying out, who will go? Who will go, he says. The only ones that will really go are the willing. Those that are willing to leave house and home and the security of an established life. Those are the ones that will go. I mean, Jesus is our perfect example. Here he is in heaven. I'm sure he's extremely comfortable, wouldn't you think? And yet we find him leaving the comforts and the abode of heaven to walk a dusty trail called Galilee and ultimately end up on a cross called Calvary. Those that are willing to leave house and home and the security of an established life, home and job and friends and family. We see that's really the call. And in many cases with missions, that is without a doubt the call. Who will go? Who will reach the men, the, the men and women on foreign soil? Who will go across this great nation of ours and reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ? There may be a time God will cry out and call and say to you, are you willing? Because the fact is that somebody must go. Abraham was willing. In the book of Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, we read now, The Lord hath said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will shew thee. And I mean, he is telling Abraham here, out of your country, away from your, your family, your father's house, even, I mean, out of the land in which you live, I mean, come on, his job's there. His family's secure. He's probably already got his 401k in place, retirement's on, on the, just on the horizon. Here he is, a 75-year-old man, and he said, get out of thy country, away from thy kindred, out of this land, and I'll tell you where I want you to go when you are willing. Boy, Abraham was willing, though. Who's willing to go? Abraham was willing. You know, Moses was willing. You think about Moses. There he was in Egypt, of course, raised up in Pharaoh's household, and he had some of the best training and teachers that they could possibly afford it. Here he is now, a 40-year-old man, and he really comes to grips in the reality that he's a Jewish, that he's a Hebrew, if you will. These are his people that are enslaved and in bondage. And he tries to take it upon himself to free them. And it doesn't work too well. Instead, he murders or kills an Egyptian and he buries him in the sand and ultimately is found out for what he'd done. And he flees. He flees into the wilderness. And now for 40 years, Moses is on the backside of the desert. And at this point, he's established a marriage. He has a family. He has a future. 
He's not now 40 years of age. Now he is 80 years of age. And all of a sudden as he walks through the mountaintop, he sees a burning bush. And there he goes to that bush because of it burning and not being consumed. And he wants to be curious as to what in the world's going on. And there speaks God out of that bush. And he tells him that he wants him to be the deliverer. To leave house and home. To take a journey that leads him back to Egypt where he almost lost his life. And to rescue those that are enslaved and in bondage. Moses was willing. He leaves the safety and the, of the confines and the confines of that mountaintop. There where simply every day he had to worry about caring for a sheep. Now he finds himself carrying the burden of a nation. He was willing. He was willing. Willing to leave house and home and the security of an established life. It's interesting, isn't it, how we can convince ourselves that God would never call me. He could call me. I mean, I'm only 10 years to retirement. He wouldn't call me. I mean, I'm established. I have a family. I have responsibilities. I have financial burdens to bear. There's no way God would call me. He called Abraham. He called Moses. You know he could call you. But then again, the only ones that will go are the willing. Willing to leave house and home in the security of an established life. Who will go? Those that are willing to step out by faith and trust God with the unknown. With the unknown. I think the unknown is probably one of the most difficult things to face in our life. You know what I mean by that. You go to get a test at the doctor's office. Or maybe at the hospital. It's that time between the test and the news that is almost unbearable. Not knowing. Because it's in that time you can almost imagine the very worst scenario ever. Now in most cases it's not. But then again, there are some which it is. But there's no enemy that's harder to fight than the unknown. The one that we know, the one that we can identify, the one that we can put our wrap our arms around or our mind around, the one that we can actually grasp and see and hold. That, that enemy is one we can deal with. It's the one we cannot see. Boy, the unknown is a tremendous enemy in our lives if we're not there. What now? Where now? Who now? But if we're going to be willing to go, if we're going to get out and accomplish what God's called us to do, then we must be willing to step out by faith and trust Him with the unknown. You know, the disciples were willing. Turn, if you would, to the book of Mark, chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We're going to see that the disciples were willing to trust the Lord with the unknown. Verse 16. Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. Jesus said unto them, 
Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. Now, I don't know about you, but there wasn't a whole lot that they knew about Jesus at this time. I mean, it wasn't like he had been ministering for years and years. We know that the ministry of Jesus Christ lasted between three and a, three and a half years. So this is at the beginning of his ministry, or toward the beginning. So obviously there was no real track record for Jesus Christ. They didn't really know what he was about. They didn't know who he really was in a sense. I, I mean, many much of what was going on in his life was still to be revealed. And here he is now calling out to these men, this Simon and Andrew. And he's saying to them, follow me. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Here they are. I mean, they have an established fishing <coughs> business. They, 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 they work. They, 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 are, they are involved in their, in their families and in the lives of their families. I mean, they have responsibility here. And he just says, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. What in the world is that supposed to mean? Fishers of men. I know what it means to fish and to pull one out of the out of the, the, the Mediterranean Sea. I know what it's like the Sea of Gennesaret. I realize how that works. But you're at the fisher of men. Let me tell you something. They had no idea where this would lead them. They really had no clue at that point exactly what that really meant. But they trusted the Lord with the unknown. You know that's what trips us up often. Whether it's out door knocking or whether it's getting involved in a ministry per se. Maybe it's being a Sunday school teacher or maybe a bus captain or worker. Or maybe it's just going out, uh, like I say, being called to the ministry. Even. We worry about what does it mean? Where is it going to take us? What happens next? I don't know if I can handle it. I don't know if I can deal with it. I'm not sure if I can make that kind of commitment. And we allow the unknown to keep us from being willing to go. The disciples were willing. We see James and John, just a verse down in verse 19, when it says, And when he had gone a little farther thence, he saw James and the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who also were in the ship, mending their nets. They're, they're doing the maintenance on their, their nets now. These two, they've been fishing and, and they want to make sure that their business stays intact, that their families continue to be fed, that the needs are continually met. And, and somebody says, well, I think they're foolish for following Jesus because, I mean, they had a responsibility. And their first responsibility was their family. And I don't understand how they could just leave their nets that day and follow the Master. Someone says, well, it almost sounds funny saying it that way, follow the Master. Exactly. Because, see, that's how foolish we really are. We're so afraid to follow the Master. But when we're saying it, we believe it. When we're, we're expressing it, it makes sense to us. When we, we, we say it out loud and hear the word master and realize that the master is the creator, when we realize that Jesus is more than just a mere man, when we realize he's more than just a leader over a, some kind of group of people or some kind of established religion, that he's actually God himself. And we say to follow him, well, all of a sudden then he must be responsible to take care of me and mine. But it's hard to think that way. Because we've been taught that if you're going to get anywhere in life, you have to do it all yourself. Let me tell you something. The Christian life's not about what I do. It's about what he's done and what he can do. It's not about, it's not about um, what I can do for God. It's about what God can do for me. 
wasn't that long ago, Brother Hamilton was, before he left to go pastor the church up north of us here, he, he was uh, here at our church. He was going to law school. And uh, I remember telling him while he was in law school that, you know, I believed that one day he would be in the ministry. And he kind of like, yeah, okay. You know, and I kind of insinuated something to that effect. He just, he didn't see it. He wanted to be a lawyer. That was his heart. He desired that, and, and obviously he pursued that. Time came when he had finished at Kent State, and he was ready to take take the next step and get into law school. And I remember uh, him coming to me, and I, I encouraged him to go back home where he was, had been. And I said, listen, we appreciate you being down here and all, and it's been wonderful. But Cleveland State has a wonderful school as well for being a lawyer. I mean, you could go back up there and be closer to your family, have an opportunity to serve in the church where you had originally left, blah, 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 blah. And so he took my advice, and he went back home, and he went to school up in Cleveland to be, a, to, to be a lawyer. And it was about a year later that I received a phone call from Brother Hamilton. And he said, you know, preacher, I wanted to call and tell you, I don't think this is going to be a surprise to you like it was many others. But the Lord spoke to my heart, and he wants me to go. And I'm willing. Before it's over with, you know how it works. Before it was over with, he was back down in our church working on staff here. And now he pastors a church. Isn't that a wonderful thing? I mean, someone would have said, well, wait a second. His life's kind of set in place. He, he felt that, man, this is it for me. God, this is where God wants me. I'm confident that I'm going to be a Lord. Matter of fact, his dad, as you well know, works with Light on the Wall Ministries. And, of course, I mean, he thought, I'll help my dad if I want to. I mean, if God really wants me to, I can go that direction even. But God wanted him in the ministry. God wanted him to give his life to the pasture. It's not always easy when you consider the unknown. I don't know about you, but I'd much rather live on a lawyer's salary than a pastor's. Now, I'll be honest with you, now as a pastor, it's a lot different than it was 20 years ago when we started Community Baptist Temple. Working full-time, knocking doors and going out every day. It was a lot different in those days, making $5.50 an hour. Let me tell you something. It was a lot. I'd have rather been on a... Uh, on a salary of a, of a lawyer. No doubt about that. And let me tell you something. When the Lord calls you, sometimes He doesn't guarantee uh, the future. He doesn't say this is how it's going to look 20 years from now. You just have to be willing to say, I'll go. I'm willing. But you have to step out by faith. You've got to be willing. Willing to trust God with the unknown. And the disciples were willing. It's funny. They're going to rule and reign with Christ. <laughs> In the morning, weren't they? Well, let's see something. Mending nets. Fishermen's retirement. Their own provision for their family. Instead, they got God's provision and God's retirement program. And they're going to rule and reign in the millennium. And their names are in the foundation. Wow. That sounds pretty good. That's pretty good. Build upon the apostles. Huh. Pretty good trade-off, don't you think? But they had to be willing 
to trust the Lord with their with the unknown. <clears throat> Peter was willing to trust the Lord with the unknown, wasn't he? Look at you on Mark 14. Mark chapter 14. In Mark chapter 14, <clears throat> verse 25, we read, Verily I say unto you, I have the wrong spot. I ran to the wrong place. I must have copied and pasted the wrong thing in my notes. You remember Peter out there on that particular boat. And the storm kicks up. Jesus had sent them out there on the Sea of Galilee. And there they are in the midst of the sea and worried for their very lives. Jesus Christ comes skating across the water. Walking, really. And what happens there? We know that before it's over with, Peter, he offers, you know, can, can I come see you, Jesus? Sure, come on out. Walk on some water, Peter. Hey, he didn't know how that was going to end, did he? Nobody else stepped out by faith. Nobody else took that opportunity to go out to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they were afraid of the unknown. They didn't know what to expect. Okay, so anyway, he steps out on the water. I wonder how he, you know what I mean? I mean, it's pretty, pretty rough out there on the sea, by the way. The wind is boisterous to buy The waves are just up and down. Okay, here we go. Come on, Peter, what are you waiting on? One moment, Lord. Just want to check the unknown out. You know how easy it would have been to stay there and just kind of keep testing the waters? I don't believe that his feet were secure until he took the step. Otherwise, if he went like that, it would just sink. I think that he had to just go, okay, Lord, here I come. Boom. Boy, I'll tell you what, he walked on water. He walked on water. He didn't know what to expect. Now, he took his eyes off of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we know he sunk. And the Lord reached out and took his hand and raised him up out of the waters. But you know what? He at least had the faith to trust the Lord for the unknown. You know, that's difficult for you and I. You got a bill that needs paid, and you don't know where it's going to come from. It's tough to trust the Lord with the unknown, isn't it? You got an issue with a relationship in your life, and it's stressed. You don't know how, which way to turn, or what to do, or how it's going to turn out. It's tough to trust the Lord with that situation. Very difficult indeed. But you've got to trust the Lord. And so do I. Hey, He's big enough to handle our problems, isn't He? And finally, willing to leave house and home and the security of an established life, willing to step out by faith and trust God with the unknown. And finally, who will go? Those that are willing to be like the Savior. To be like the Savior. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Turn there if you would, please. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. Okay. All right. If the Bible says in chapter 2, verse 5 through 8, give that back so I can look it. 
Here we go. chapter 2 verse 5 <laughs> let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in the fashion of a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross what we find here is that these were willing to, we talk about this idea, who will go? Those that are willing to be like the Savior. Willing to be a servant of God and man. According to verse 7, we see that. But made himself, the Lord Jesus Christ made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He became a servant. He became a servant to both God, the Father, and to mankind. The very creation, his very creation. We see also that those that are willing to humble themselves, the Lord Jesus did in verse 8, and being found in a fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Can you imagine the creator, God, the creator of all the universe, humbling himself before his creation? That, that is really a, a, an unbelievable concept. I mean, because honestly, if, if you're somebody today in the world, I mean, most people that are somebody don't want to humble themselves to somebody that they consider to be below them. But Jesus Christ was the creator of all. And he humbled himself. And instead of being elevated and exalted like he ought to have been, in many cases, they treated him like dirt. And yet he still humbled himself. Matter of fact, he was willing to be a servant of God and man, willing to humble himself, but also he was willing to suffer if need be. In the book, in verse 8 again, it says, the second part said he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. There, there was no agony, no pain like that. I mean, he suffered on behalf of those he served. Jesus Christ was willing to go. And if we're going to be willing, we have to be willing to be like the Savior. A servant. Humble and willing to suffer. And that is just a reality it seems in many cases that we are willing to follow the Lord. We're willing to say, I'll go if we know how it's going to turn out and that it's going to turn out in our favor. We'll be comfortable. You know, our needs will be met. My wife and family will be fine. Have you ever read any books about missionaries in the early days? You know David Livingston, we didn't talk about this this morning, but do you know that David Livingston's wife who went with him to Africa died at the age of 42 because of a fever she caught in Africa? Do you realize that David Livingston himself was sick the rest of his life because he too had that fever and it would come back on him? Maybe like malaria, something like that. I mean, there, there, were, there were many that lost family, many that lost children, many that themselves, their lives were taken. And, and if we're not careful, we look at life today and we feel like, because this is all we know, we assume this is what it's, all we, it's really all about. To lose my life here would be the end of everything. To suffer would be the end of everything. But in reality, it's just a prelude to eternity. Right. We have to keep perspective. 
And the perspective is a godly perspective that we need to have. A worldview that is fueled by the word of God. Not by the culture and the society in which we live. That says it's all about gaining and getting. God's economy really is totally different. It's about giving ourselves. Nehemiah was willing. Willing to be like Christ. In Nehemiah chapter 1, turn there if you would please. We're almost done. It's our last point. There's just a couple little things here. We're done. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 2. Excuse me, Nehemiah 1 verse 2 through 4. There we read, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity concerning Jerusalem. Now, again, we have this man, Nehemiah, who is the king's cupbearer. And, of course, he's been removed from his land. Jerusalem, of course, went into Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. Now, 70 years have passed, and we're seeing a revival, if you will, or a return back to that land. And Nehemiah, his heart is burned as one of his brethren come and say to him, that, that, man, listen, there's some issues taking place. In verse 3, he says, He said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. He says, man, the city's in a mess. The people that were left behind there, they're, I mean, in dire straits. Then Nehemiah's heart breaks. Notice he goes on. It says here, And it came to pass, when I heard these words, verse 4, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's heart is broken as he hears the situation, as he's being informed, getting a sit rep, if you will, a situation report on what's taking place back in his homeland. Nehemiah ultimately, we know, so brokenhearted and so concerned about the, the people of God and the condition of the land that he is willing to go. He's willing to leave house and home. He's willing to leave uh, everything behind. He is willing to, to take that next step of obedience and say, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I know I've got a God big enough to handle me and all the people and the, the, that are there and the mission that he's given me. I'm going. I'm willing to go because I'm willing to serve. I'll humble myself and I'll even suffer if need be. Let me tell you, all of that came to pass. But Nehemiah went. You know, we live in a world where there are people hurting. The walls have been burned down. The city's in disarray. People's lives are wrecked and ruined. Somebody has to go. Does anybody care anymore? It said that in Psalm chapter 140, uh, 42, I believe it is, David says, And no man cared for my soul. Isn't it a sad shame when the lost can go about the world and no one cares to tell them, no one cares about their future or their, their, their eternal destination, where we are just content to do as we please and we go about business comfortably instead of upsetting our lifestyle, being uncomfortable so that they can hear the truth. Nehemiah says, you know what? I'll be like the Savior. I'll be a servant. I'll humble myself and I'll suffer if need be. But I will go. He was willing. 
the Apostle Paul was with them. Aren't you glad when you consider that 13 of the books from the New Testament were written by that man of God? <coughs> Possibly 14 if you include Hebrews. Some do, some don't. One day in heaven we'll know the whole truth and nothing but the truth. The fact is, is that he went. The Bible tells us it by his own testimony. We read in Acts 26, 19, when he stands before King Agrippa, whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Well, I'll guarantee you, Paul had no clue what to expect when he said yes to God. He had no idea what was going to transpire and take place. He didn't know that he would ultimately be a writer of this New Testament. He didn't realize or know how many years he had to live. He didn't know whether or not he would be used to the degree that he was. What he did know is that God had spoken to his heart. And if he was going to go, he had to be willing. God may not want you to go overseas. He may not want you to leave this state. He may not want you to go to the other side of the nation. But he does want you to go to somebody. See, the question is always the same for us. Will we go? Will I go? And someone says, well, you, you've already decided to go. Hold on. Maybe God has something else. See, I can't assume that this is it always, forever. My heart is open to God. I have to say, God, I am willing if you want me to go. What if God spoke to my heart today and said, uh, Mark, I want you in the mission field. And I said, well, God, you've got to understand something. Now, you got to understand this and this and this and this. That's impossible. But what if he did tell me to do that? I'm just saying but see, what we do to God is this. We say, God, God would never, God would never ask me to do that. God would never tell me to do that. I mean, I'm, I'm just not, I'm not the preacher type, or I'm not the missionary type, or I'm not the soul winning type. He wouldn't ask me to do that. There's always somebody better than me. I mean, that's all the truth. But see, God doesn't want you necessarily to go, as the preacher said this week, but he does want you to be willing. And he wants me to do that. Would you be willing to put your life plans on hold? Fulfill God's plan for your life? There is no better place to be than in the center of God's will. Who's willing to go? Our missions is up there. It's important, but more important than the number of dollars that are given to missions is an attitude of heart by people. What's our heart today? Are we willing? Because who's going to go? <clears throat> the will. Jesus was willing. Abraham, Moses was willing. The disciples were willing. Peter was willing. Paul was willing. Are you? Are you willing? Lord Jesus Christ will cry out and he'll ask who will go for us. But before he'll ask you to go for him, he's going to who will come to me. You have to come to him first as Lord and Savior.
He's going to call to you. He's going to speak to you. Inside your heart, you're going to know there's something wrong. Your sin is something that needs dealt with. And the Holy Spirit of God is going to make it very clear that the Lord's saying, Come unto me, all you that labor are heavy laden. I will give you rest. The Holy Spirit will be knocking at the heart door. You've got to be willing to open it and let it in. Are you willing? If you haven't already trusted him, receiving as Lord and Savior, are you willing to? And once you've been willing to do that, are you willing to do that? Father, we come.